This is TechSnap, episode 353. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We recorded this episode on January 25th, 2018. It is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, IX Systems, Ting, and DigitalOcean. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as the show goes on. My name is Chris, and joining us every week is the DevOps, the SysOps, and the presenter. Why, yes, it's Mr. Payne, Mr. Wes Payne. Hello, Wes. Hello. <laughs> you like that? I was, uh, Wes and I were chatting before the show, and he was dealing with uh, some work stuff on the day job. And I'm like, yeah, so right now you're, you're basically wearing three hats in this one support ticket. <laughs> so you, earned, you earned all those titles this week. And uh, we thought to help uh, prepare us for the show. To help you get out of work mode and to get us into show mode, we'd start with a fun story this week. We have a lot to cover. There is a lot to cover. But it turns out, if you're really motivated, you could use your local DNS server to store some files. Yes, you can. Uh, so a Cloudflare employee, Mr. Ben Cox, had been doing some research about you know just how long DNS resolvers hold things in their cache, right? So they do lookups, they cache the results, and right. then hold that for a while. At some point, it's evicted from the cache and you go get a fresh lookup. Um, this research showed that some resolvers will hold DNS cache entries for like a whole week if asked to. Now, not not most of them, but like that's sort of the tale, right? You get a decent amount of cache time. And he was thinking, maybe I could use this for file storage. Even if it's temporary, I could stash something up there. Yeah, so this is sort of, this is DNS FS, and it's uh, inspired by something maybe you've already heard of, PingFS, which is a file system invented by Eric Ekman uh, that lets you store information in the internet itself. Now, not really in the yeah. internet itself, but uh, the basic idea is inside a ping packet, there's the data payload, and this data is transferred when you send it out as a ping, and then when the ping reply comes in, that's transferred back to you. So basically, by letting it just be transferred along for a while, you can store information. Right. And then the FS part comes in because they're using Fuse to overlay it as a file system. So you just, you know, put copy some files in there and uh, let the internet store it for you. I love it. Now, obviously, this isn't a ton. You get like 1,400-ish bytes in the payload. Um, so it's not a great idea for either a lot of data storage or long-term data storage. Plus, if your packets get dropped, you know... There goes your data. True, but if you and I needed to leave secret messages for each other in a pretty untraceable way, unless you were looking for it, this might be it. It, it very well could be. It's probably better than a draft in Gmail. <laughs> yes. Okay, so DNS is a little bit better because, as we've mentioned, it has caches. So there's actually some data retention on the other side. Right. You don't just have to rely only on the network. Yeah, transfer. you can get up to a week, potentially. Yeah, so this means that the DNF, DNSFS idea looks sort of the same as PingFS, but once a query is sent out, it's cached in the resolver, and you don't have to keep sending packets to keep the data alive. So it could actually be almost like a real file system. Okay, you've got my interest peaked, but how do I find the right DNS server that will let me do this? Yes, yeah, so, okay, so to get started... We're going to need to scan the whole internet for resolvers. Now, this sounds like a, maybe a lot, something you're not really interested into. but Or something that's going to get me on a list. Uh, or something that'll get you on a list. So you can do some good faith things here and, you know, don't try to scan places that aren't routable. There's also some lists available of people who don't wish to be scanned, right? Just IPA spaces that their administrators would prefer that you don't scan. So hmm. try to be respectful. If you do that, you'll come up with probably about what Ben did, which is 3,900,000,000 or so IP addresses. 
in addition, like we only are looking for open resolvers here, which means like DNS servers that can look up any public domain, not sure. just a single DNS server that's authoritative that for sense. one domain, right? So, so we're, it's a pretty limited subset of this giant set. So you're whittling down this huge three three point nine billion number pretty quickly. Yes. Okay. So to do this, he used Robert Graham's mass scan tool to send DNS queries to basically all those IP addresses we talked about before. Additionally, he needed to make sure like this scan to start out with was pretty much just scanning on port fifty three, so looking for UDP stuff. He need, he had some more specifics, right? He wanted to make sure it was a DNS server that matched this exact address. He was able to use. BPF to make some pretty cool filters, compile it down and load it into IP tables. So instead of having to sort of scan port 53 and then do more processing to identify just the DNS servers he wanted, he could do it all in one step. Oh, okay. So BPF, they use it essentially as a as a packet filtering tool to filter out everything they don't want and just sort of zero in on the stuff they do want. Yeah, exactly. He writes, my solution is to use a great feature of the Linux kernel called BPF filters. You can use them with IP tables to drop any traffic you don't want, but programmatically. One BPF rule can do the whole chain's worth of work. Um, wow. So it's a free, yeah, it's an extensible way to design filters that you can use. So, And then once, I think that the idea is that once you've done that, once you put these BPF filters in place, you send the resulting, or I guess what's left, through TCP dump. Right. So he managed to write a TCP dump filter that only matched, like, with the help of this, the DNS responses that he wanted. And then once you run mass scan this way, you'll see basically only the results that you want. You don't have to do any second layers of filtering. You don't have to go try to qualify the results. You just get, like, one big data set. That's that's pretty clever. That is, that is pretty neat. That is pretty great. So he did this for about 24 hours to complete the scan and got only two abuse notices. Maybe oh. that's better than you think. Yeah, it, well, it is. Yeah. Okay. Um, one was automated and very formal. The other one was clearly sent by a somewhat pissed off sysadmin. <laughs> yeah, it just says F off and die scum. <laughs> Pleasant. Yeah. Only not censored. It wasn't censored. Yeah, probably best to add his IP arranges to your do not scan list. <laughs> so at the end of this whole thing, um, he was left with about 3,800,000 open DNS resolvers. Um, and he's got some info there if you want to go check out all the different places he found them, a distribution of by country and, and area and that sort of thing. Mm, and by ISP, which is interesting. China yeah. Unicom is the most, then Korea Telecom, then the Data Commu- Communications Business Group, then another China Telecom. Uh, but Quest is in the uh, top of the list there. Uh, so there's uh, there you go. And so is Orange. It's pretty high up in the list as well as Viacom. And then further down, but not far as it should be, uh, Frontier, which is uh, one of our local ISPs. It sure is. So to further filter this down, um, he waited 10 days to allow for all the resolvers that could be on a dynamic IP address to change and then become unusable. So after waiting that time, going and like rebuilding this, comparing, trying to look for just like a stable set of DNS servers, that cut down about 40% of his IP list. Hmm. Okay. I suppose he's not even necessarily violating any sort of terms of service. There's no like agreement to, before you talk to a DNS server, and you're just including a little extra data. This is true. Um, I, yeah, what he's doing is, you know, definitely research. I would not call it malicious. Uh, whether or not it's in the implicit social contract of providing open DNS servers, that's a perhaps a gray area. You know what else is kind of great about this? He got data back on the different kinds of DNS servers that responded. Yeah. And that was fascinating. It looks like 46% of them were DNS mask. And then uh, Microsoft came in at 18.3%, Bind at 22.4%. And then uh, the rest are like PowerDNS with 7%, ZYWall with 3%. 
uh, DNS mask, a impressive 46% because it's often like the front end caching thing that a lot of different systems use. Yeah, definitely. And used on a ton of small networks out yeah. there. So we had this list put together um, and broke it down this way to sort of qualify it. After further filtering, he was down to like 400,000 open resolvers. This is that breakdown of those servers. Then he looked up what the default cache size yeah. on each of those softwares are. So adding that up, making some estimates about like how much you think you could store or how many text records you're using, how long those can be. Looks like he can store approximately 250 megabytes. That's a lot of work for 250 hey, megs. That'd be a couple of podcasts. But it is like that's real data storage. Let's uh let's hook that up to an HTTP front end and distribute the show this way. It's a it's it's a it's a good way to distribute podcasts. <laughs> so here he's like if you like replicate it to like three different servers, let's say, just to have some redundancy at the server level. Um it looked like he was able to make this stable enough that you could reasonably store that much info for at least a day. So it wouldn't work wow. to uh you know, long term, but but maybe like as you're saying, like you want to leave like a you know a weird a weird note. You really have no USBs for some reason. You're you can't get to your Gmail. There's no places you can absolutely can't even you know spin up a, a droplet. Maybe this is for you. He actually did experiment with tossing an HTTP in- interface in front of it too. I was just joking, but he actually gave it a go. He says maybe I won't use Fuse. Maybe I'll do this, and he writes up, uh, <laughs> "Wow, that's incredible!" And then he was able to curl uh, files. In the DNS cache through the HTTP interface that he built for it. <laughs> Remarkable. It's really neat. It's like relatively simple Go code. Uh, every file gets split up into 180-byte chunks. Those chunks are set inside caches by querying, uh, querying all these nodes via the public resolver and looking for a text record. After a few seconds, once it's been transferred, it's removed from your local computer and uh, it's just waiting there for you to retrieve it. I'll put a link to the open source project in the show notes if you guys want to take a look at this thing. It's just great because there's a there's a GIF in there, a GIF, if you will, that uh, you can watch that, to get an idea of how it works. Go to techsnap.systems slash 353. We'll have a link to the story, but also just to the GitHub page, which has the fun code you can get your hands on and play with. Yeah, you know, it's not necessarily super serious, but I like that he was able to go from conception to implementation and really explained it very well. TechSnap.ting.com. Go there to get $25 off a device, or if you bring a GSM or CDMA device, you can get $25 in service credit. TechSnap.ting.com, a smarter way to do mobile. Your average bill, $23 for a phone per month. It's just pay for what you use wireless. A fair price for however much you talk, text, and data you use. Nationwide coverage. Rest assured, Ting has got you covered from coast to coast. And no contracts, no agreements, nothing crazy like that. It's really simple, straightforward wireless. You just pay for what you use. I download my podcast. I pin my music before I hit the road. And I'm, I'm always shocked with three phones. Three phones. I often come in under 45 bucks. I don't know how it's even possible. Oh, I do know how it's possible. Ting makes mobile simple. And they have a bunch of great devices you can get. And I also want to point you over to their blog. Been wondering about Ting Internet or what is Ting Internet? It's crazy fast fiber. And they have a blog post about it right now. Start by going to techsnap.ting.com. Look at their great devices. Try them out. Bring a device and get $25 in service credit. There's tons of options. Check them out. Techsnap.ting.com. Our next story this week is a good example of sometimes open source does bring more eyes on the code. I'm betting this doesn't affect a lot of you, but if you have an Asus wireless router, one of their nicer ones, it's likely running their own homebrew Linux-based operating system, Asus WRT, which is open source 
and has led to a researcher from Agile Information Security discovering a pretty significant local vulnerability. Yeah, that's right. So it's used on, like you're talking about, mid-range, high-end ASUS routers. Uh, it's based on you know a lot of the router open source router technology that exists in this space. That kind of makes it neat because this has actual code samples right here. So go check out the vulnerability if you're curious to see like a little more, a little lower level detail. Yeah, and he's commented the code too, so you can follow yeah, along Yeah, it's pretty, pretty easy. To, yeah, it's great. Um, the basic idea here is that the HTTP, HTTP server that runs for the local LAN administration interface has a flaw in one of its hand request handling methods that allows an unauthenticated user to perform a post request for certain actions. So, oh. so you can see in the code, there's a couple checks where it's like, hey, are you authorized? Even in the unauthorized workflow, though, it doesn't necessarily return the results to you, but it does do the action that the post request has requested. So uh-huh. that still actually does have an effect on the back end. And he was able to just sort of read the code and see that. The other, the other thing here is that it's ripe for abuse and chaining, right? We talk about this a lot. Sure, that lets you do some things, but what's what's the whole point of that? Yeah, the what point can you do with it once you've gotten in? Is A good example of this is a second vulnerability that they found, which is an unauthorized configuration change, a.k.a. being able to set NVRAM values. Oh. Yes. Um, so you can use that first vulnerability, send some unauthorized posts to vpnupload.cgi, Okay. Which can do, which can invoke the do VPN upload post method. Sure, of course. Right? Um, which has a vulnerability that allows an attacker to set NVRAM configuration values directly from the request. So I can just have curl right here if I'm on your local NAN, LAN, send some posts at your router and uh, change its firmware settings. Or set the admin password, it apparently is. Right. Well. So one way that they did this is like one, one value in those NVRAM values is the admin password. So you can change that. And then you can easily get code execution. You just log into the web interface with the new password, enable SSH, reboot the router, log in over SSH. Boom, root shell. There is, though, an even more elegant option. Uh, there's a UDP daemon called InfoServe, which runs on port 900 or 9,999. And this daemon has a special mode where it executes a command received in a packet as the root user. Sounds oh, like a great idea already, yeah, right? Yeah, I like that. This special mode is only enabled if... ATE command underscore flag is set to the value one, which most likely only happens during factory testing or QA. It's not enabled by default in the firmware, but you can use those those two vulnerabilities we just talked about to set that flag with an unauthorized post request. And then, boom, it'll just execute whatever you want. You don't have to change a password. You leave basically no trace. And then you're just broadcasting UDP packets to port 9999. Yep. And it'll just execute some as root just right there for you. Um, so they have also made a Metasploit module available. So uh, you can go test this if you do have one of these routers. Go test your vulnerable and then go test Asus WRT version 3.0043841007 or above and go make sure that that firmware does indeed fix this yeah. fix this bug. Asus says it does. So if you get that latest firmware as of a couple of days ago, they say the fix is in there. The researcher points out they've included very little details in the patch notes, though, so it might be worth testing. <laughs> feels like in this day and age, if we didn't have a story about AI, at least now and again, we'd really be missing out on a trend and a fancy buzzword. Is that what it is? is it, does it have to be baked into everything now? I've you know, got to keep up. I can't tell. Checkpoint seems to be making a big deal about artificial intelligence working its way into, quote unquote, cybersecurity. Now, I think what they mean by that is like log analysis and looking at trends and collating like a, a bunch of different stuff and aggregating all that information and taking action 
on on something that humans would have to review at a scale of tens of thousands. That's what I that's what I kind of grok from their corporate speak. Yes, I believe so. You know, more and more, we, we basically just have more data now, right? So the better you instrument your networks, the more logs you tail, the more, you know, access attempts you try to sort through. That's just a lot of data and you can't really scale that with humans. So one approach is trying to train special AI, you know, AI programs, AI algorithms designed to process that data and look for suspicious activity or or anything else that you're trying to glean. Yeah, I could see that. I, and, you know, Checkpoint says they have some real numbers here. They say, they claim, that 10% of the tax that they have blocked that human analysis wouldn't have even been able to spot. And they say in other areas, it's capturing 13% more malicious executables. And they say they've seen an improvement in context-aware detection at a rate that is twofold. So that's a pretty noticeable improvement if you're blocking 10% more than what the humans could have. You're capturing 13% more of malicious executables, and you're seeing a twofold improvement in what they call context-aware detection. And I mean, there's only, you know, there's only more, more attacks, uh, more connected devices, more things you have to sort through. So AI definitely has potential to be hugely useful here. Uh, but so far, it looks like there's still a number of serious and embarrassing errors that like have to get worked worked through. According to Checkpoint, the key problems in applying AI to security so far have come from one, not enough training data, and then two, not enough expertise. And they really go hand in hand, right? So you can you you need they have they have actual running data, but you need labeled classified training data in order to tune these AIs, oh, right? That's course. part of the whole thing is if you're going to teach it, it needs information to learn from. So if you don't have enough people to make that information, if you don't have enough of that information, especially, you know, it may, might be that you need to train these models pretty precisely to different operating environments. So you're going to need customized training data for that. Plus, due to the, you know, the security, the sensitive nature of this data, it's been pretty hard for any sort of information sharing culture to develop here. So there's just not that much access to it. Well, when it comes to data, you know who does have that problem solved is Google. And there must be some fire to this AI smoke because Alphabet... Alphabet, as we all know, the parent company to Google, they are launching a new cybersecurity unit. And the whole pitch is that AI is at the core of this new cyber unit. Yes, it's called Chronicle. Chronicle is almost noteworthy just because Project Zero has become so noteworthy. Oh, yeah. No, I definitely think so. Google's made a name for itself in the security fields, but just as a just in the research end, right? Not necessarily in the applied or even as a service. The products coming from Chronicle are expected to be pretty different from what you see from a lot of other current market offerings, rely heavily on artificial intelligence, and I bet they'll be working hand-in-hand with Project Zero to help tune some of that stuff, too. Yeah, they're also hiring, so they've spun up uh, some uh, hiring and managing operations, and they're merging together with VirusTotal, which is a malware analysis engine that they acquired several years ago. I bet that'll come with some interesting data as well. This has been brewing inside of Google quietly since 2016. And they were building this together and sort of assembling the components. And so it's it's not totally brand new. But now they're launching it as its own entity branched out from underneath Alphabet. As you said, probably a complement to Project Zero more than anything else. Speaking of Project Zero, Project Zero security researchers have found what they claim is a critical flaw in the transmission BitTorrent client that could enable cyber crooks to take control of users' computers. That's the headline. Yikes. You know, I, it may be too that... Um... You have your transmission exposed to the internet because it has um, an RPC interface that's pretty popular. So you can have an app on your phone that connects over RPC to your transmission client. So 
I, I could see there being a lot of exploitable systems out there. If you're running transmission, make sure you go patch. Yeah, I guess what they found really, according to Project Zero, was a DNS rebinding attack. That was the actual problem. And they could use that to trick the PC into accepting requests via that very connection mechanism. This is probably a good time to just talk about what a DNS rebinding attack is. Um, you guys may know this just happened to Blizzard's update agent as well. Yeah. So uh, it's clearly a pretty common attack going on. Actually, the pull request, uh, which we'll have linked in the show notes, has a pretty good breakdown of what's happening, um, the pull request to fix this problem in transmission over on their GitHub page. The basic idea is this. I'm running Wes's evil site, and I control the DNS for that DNS entry, right? So I set it up to alternate between two different addresses. One, the real address of a server I'm running that, that will serve a web page and, and JavaScript. And then alternately, localhost, 127.0.0.1, Right. Um, and so I set it up so this alternates maybe every three minutes, five minutes, whatever. Perhaps you do it in a more controlled manner. The basic idea is it just switches between those two entries. Okay. And so if you visit Wes's evil site when it's set up as my actual server's real public IP address, my server will serve you JavaScript and an HTML page that waits for that DNS entry to change. Uh-huh. So then once you've waited that long, the next lookup you do will reveal that that entry is just is just localhost. Now, browsers generally prevent JavaScript from making cross-site requests, right? So it, I can't run JavaScript that will pretend to that will try to go connect to Facebook with your cookies. Like that's just not allowed because that JavaScript wasn't served from Facebook.com. But when you've done this DNS rebinding attack, suddenly that the address that that JavaScript was served from is localhost. So suddenly you have JavaScript that has the ability to make localhost requests from the browser. This combines in Transmission's case because a lot of times Transmission has a locally listening RPC client API. As the Blizzard updater did as well. Exactly. So one possible attack method here is Transmission has a a method call you can make that sets a, a download action. So when a torrent finishes downloading, it will run some program. Boom. You know, you can have that run a command that gives changes passwords, gives you access to the computer. Turns on as whatever you need. Yeah. yeah. So basically the basic idea here is if you can do some clever DNS attacks, malicious people could serve JavaScript that could make transmission execute malicious commands. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Go to IXSystems.com slash TechSnap to support the show and learn more about a company that can build servers, storage solutions driven by open source. They're experts in the field. Once you talk to them, you get a quick understanding that they're going to build a solution that's unique and specific to you. They work with a whole range of hardware partners, which they outline on their website if you're interested. And they've become a tier one partner with these different companies over the years. IX Systems reaches out to the open source community and works directly with the people that are writing the code. You know, little things like OpenZFS, FreeNAS, FreeBSD, those kinds of things. And they work with them directly. So they become experts on these topics. The software side, the hardware side, all of it. I'm also going to give a quick recommendation to their Twitter feed, twitter.com slash ixsystems. They'll tweet about free NAS tips or uh, interesting things going on in the open source community. ixsystems make some great systems. Check them out, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Containers certainly are a hot topic these days in all shapes and sizes. So let's talk about them for a little bit at the large scale. Yeah, we said we were into buzzwords. So today's buzzword is Kubernetes or K8s, you know, or even Cube, if you're into that brevity sort of thing. Oh, you can you can get away with just calling it Cube? Yeah. So I do hear the word a lot, Kubernetes, Kubernetes, whatever. I hear it all the time. It seems like it's blown up in the last year. Absolutely. Now, what is it? 
It's an open source platform that automates Linux container operations. So as we've talked about, you know, there's a lot of things that have been shifting to containers for a lot of the reasons that we've talked about, um, especially in, you know, big, big scale deployments. You're writing a bunch of different microservices. Containers can really help you isolate that that service into its own reproducible build. And it's a package container that you can just sort of ship, right? So using those Linux container primitives in the kernel, you can then set up its own little environment. It runs, feels right at home, and you can run it on whatever server that you have available. But I don't know if you've ever tried, Chris, but if you just start spinning up a whole bunch of Docker containers and you spew them over a bunch of servers and sort of run them statically, really you just have the same problems as if you had a whole bunch of really small Absolutely, right? Like it doesn't change that much. And that might be a fine thing if you just want to run a Docker container because it's easier or it's better to deploy it oh, on a single with, VM. It's like, fine with a couple of them, but if you're deploying hundreds or more of containers... Then you really start having some problems. Even there. a dozen or so. And that's where you might start thinking about something like Kubernetes. There are some other alternatives that we may talk about on the TextNet program. Docker has one built in called Docker Swarm. Uh, and there's also kind of the old standby for um, abstracting the data center, which is Apache Mesos. Um, they have one component marathon that does a lot of what Kubernetes does. But today... We're talking Kubernetes. And so Kubernetes is not inherently married to Docker. No. Um, Kubernetes is, actually ends up being part of the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, um, and they've put in been involved in a lot of the work to sort of um, standardize some of the container lower levels. So you may be um, familiar with Containerd, libcontainer, some of the efforts to take what has been either LXC code or Docker code, the underpinnings that basically do the the hard work of hooking into the kernel APIs and doing the actual containerization and making that just a pretty public API people can use. Um, So these days, you can run Kubernetes with all kinds of different container runtimes. You can have it be Docker. You can have it be the the OCI standard. You can have it be Rocket, um, whatever might make it work. And Mm. Kubernetes can sort of plug into that. Okay, fair enough. I think I hear about it in connection with Docker a lot, which is kind of interesting. You mentioned the Cloud Native Foundation, which... Kubernetes is part of. Well, Rocket's part of the Cloud Native Foundation as well. They're under that same umbrella, which is under the Linux Foundation umbrella. But yet, I still think in actual production, Kubernetes is most commonly used with Docker. Right. The Docker workflow using local Docker daemons, maybe even the Docker runtime, all of those are still some, somewhat common to see in Kubernetes. And it is you know, one of the ways where you can produce, can produce a container image. However you do that, you can then use Kubernetes to run it. So what is it about Kubernetes that has everybody talking about it? I, th- I think really it's that um, you know, it eliminates a lot of the manual processes that would be involved in deploying and scaling these containerized applications. You know, you've made them smaller. You've put them in their little boxes. Now you have just your whole floor is filled with boxes and you have to figure out how to orchestrate them together. Using Kubernetes, you can cluster together groups of hosts, um, right? You already have all these VMs probably that are running on infrastructure. Using Linux containers, you can then use Kubernetes to abstract all of those underlying VMs and then just run containers on them. You don't have to be concerned with where they run, how they run, what happens, how they get scheduled. Kubernetes does that for you. I think one piece that is important to know is that Kubernetes was originally developed and designed by engineers at Google. Um, I think part of the reason Kubernetes has this sort of you know plug-in pluggable abstraction is that before there was Docker, I mean Google's been running containers for like ten years. They were some of the people that that pushed for a bunch of the C group work in the kernel itself. They they've been doing this for a long time, um, so they've been early contributors and they've been running containerized workloads for years. They did it all with an internal system known as Borg, and they they generate more than like two million container deployments a week 
all powered on Borg. In many ways, Borg was the predecessor to Kubernetes, and a lot of people who worked internally on Borg went to the Kubernetes team and started developing it. Fun fact also, the seven spokes in the Kubernetes logo refer to the project's original name inside Google, Project Seven of Nine. Oh, I love it. <laughs> nice Voyager reference there. So it really, you know, Kubernetes is, an, it's, it's open source. Um, it's governed by, you know, a, a foundation with multiple interested corporations involved. And it lets you leverage a lot of the operational insights Google's had if you are yeah. running these larger deployments of yeah. microservices. And it seems like perhaps uh, its previous involvement with Google may be contributing to some of its credence in the... Uh... Yes. I mean, it's hugely popular on GitHub. It has a whole bunch of momentum. And because Google was able to de- do a bunch of develop first, they kind of just dropped this half-formed, maybe maybe 80% formed project that's able to just pick up and go. So to get a good sense of where Kubernetes is at, on December 15th, they released version 1.9, and one of the headline features of 1.9 is that you can now scale up to 5,000 nodes. We'll talk in a moment about challenges scaling to just 2,500 nodes, but just from a practical standpoint, day-to-day, what are the things Kubernetes is going to get me? Yeah, just a couple of the like the takeaways of why you might want to use it. And it, you know, it's complex. You're going to need to sit down and study it. But some of the higher level things is, I mean, one, orchestration, right? So you have a whole bunch of nodes. You need to run containers on them. How do you do that? Which ones do you put where? How do you balance those loads? Kubernetes can orchestrate containers across multiple hosts. Uh, in doing this, it'll try to make better use of hardware to maximize resources. I'm sure if you've run virtualization servers, you've ended up, if you haven't already solved for it, you end up with hosts that don't do very much sitting, you know, a whole bunch on a box or a box that's way underutilized just because it has a bunch of hosts that don't have a lot of load. Kubernetes can help you manage that too. Um, Another big part is it has a notion of deployments, right? It's not necessarily just hardware. It understands that you're running containers, that you're running software on that hardware. So you can control and automate application deployments. It has some abstract notions of storage. So a lot of containers will be somewhat stateless services, um, which is a, a... an idea that you know you don't rely on your local state sure you can do some transient processing but you have inputs to the container the container does some function some work on that and has outputs which might be web requests that are returned logs that are sent somewhere metrics that are exported any of those sorts of things but sometimes you need to run stuff that is stateful things like databases so they have ways to mount and add storage like you've probably seen with other sort of network type storage applications Another big aspect here is that you can declaratively manage services, right? So this starts to get some stuff that you might see on AWS, stuff like CloudFormation, where you can sort of specify, I have this container with this tag. I want to run six of them, make sure that they scale up to this much. They need to be able to talk to this other service, run that too. You have a way to, you know, in a declarative way, say, describe what your system will look like instead of having to imperatively click through and be like, okay, I need to add six servers. Oh, yep, draw some network links over here. Each one needs this much RAM. You can have that all stored in version control so you can track how you've changed and defined your cluster. And if you need to, build it all up again. And then the last part is it has some of that stuff you're also used from from the cloud, like like auto-scaling and health checks. So it can know that like if your node gets into trouble, the container needs to be restarted, Kubernetes will do that too. Now, I know some of you listening might be quick to point out there are a couple of critical things that Kubernetes doesn't bring that you will have to supplement with other projects. The biggest one for me would be like centralized managed logins. You're going to have to provide something else like LDAP. Even really security, they, they, they recommend you rely on things like SE Linux, OAuth, and other mechanisms for security. There's also no ability to configure networking. 
which is a big part of some of the proprietary platforms, is they can go out and talk to some of the networking hardware and provision at the network level. There's other means, though, like uh, open vSwitch and uh, other other ways to do intelligent edge routing, but it's not inherently built into Kubernetes. Yeah, it's not. it won't solve all of your data center problems. It just has a component. Well, we were talking about artificial intelligence early in the show, and our friends over at OpenAI.com wrote a blog post about scaling their Kubernetes system to 2,500 nodes, and they ran into several issues, which I think we could take some lessons from. Yeah, they've been running Kubernetes for deep learning research for over two years now. Their largest scale workloads are mostly like bare cloud VMs. So they spin up cloud VMs and then run Kubernetes cluster on top of that. Uh, And they like it because Kubernetes provides a fast iteration cycle, reasonable scalability, which we'll talk about, and a lack of boilerplate. So it's really good for their experiments. You know, they have a new model they're trying to train, a new system. They can just spin up a new cluster over here, configure some new services, uh, and quickly, quickly try things. Uh, the largest of the clusters they now pushed to over 2,500 nodes, as you talked about. This cluster runs in Azure, and uh, it's a combination of some pretty beefy VMs for this deep learning research. 2,500 nodes is interesting, since version 1.9 just introduced support for 5,000 maximum nodes. And on their path to scaling to 2,500, they discovered that many of the system components caused different breakages at different levels. So the first of those problems was with etcd. Now, I love the name of this app, Um etcd functions as a distributed key value store and so you can think of it sort of as the configuration daemon for all of your distributed applications and for kubernetes itself so when you need to store configuration state you put it in etcd so etcd needs to be able to respond to requests to change that and to to read from it so after they passed about 500 nodes in their cluster researchers started reporting regular timeouts from kubectl which is one of the main commands you use to interact with kubernetes um, whenever it was trying to trying to pull from the cube masters and from from etcd it was just taking forever (laughs) so they tried adding more more master servers this seemed to solve the problem for a while but once we passed about like 10 replicas they were they they really had figured out they were treating symptoms and not the cause Mm. this led them down the path of suspecting the etcd cluster which is the central store of state for all of the cube masters uh, looks like they've been using Datadog. So using Datadog, they were able to observe that the write latency was spiking to hundreds of milliseconds on the machines running the etcd replicas. So even though they had like a, a pretty nice SSD capable of like 5,000 IOPS, they're still observing these these big, slow spikes to disk. They used a FIO to do some more benchmarking and saw that etcd was only able to use about 10% of the available IOPS because the write latency was like 2 milliseconds and etcd does sequential I.O., making it latency bound. So that sort of placed a maximum limit on how much throughput they were really going to get. And the fix for this problem was more straightforward than you might at first suspect. They just ended up moving the etcd directory for each node to a local temp disk, which was an SSD connected directly to the instance rather than one of the network-attached storage units. Right. So this brought write latency down to 200 microseconds. And hey, etcd was healthy. But of course being the way this story goes, that only worked up to about a 1,000 nodes, at which point they saw high commit latency from etcd once again. This time, they noticed that the Cube API servers were reading more than 500 megs a second out of etcd. That's a lot of, that's a lot of configuration data. Uh, they set up Prometheus, which is another cloud-native computing foundation project, to monitor those servers. And they also enabled some logs to enable more logging so that they you know, could get as much data out of this as possible. This surfaced a number of slow queries, excessive calls, and other things. It all really boiled down to they had configured FluentD and Datadog's monitoring processes to query the API servers basically more than was reasonable. So they were just generating way too much load on themselves 
her, and as that scaled with more processes being monitored, more daemons running Datadog and Fluentd, there was more requests on the etcd cluster, and it just couldn't keep up. They simply changed these processes to be less aggressive with their polling, and everything's stable once again. We'll link to the OpenAI post where you can read more about issues. They started getting to huge Docker images, some network scaling problems. But we thought this was sort of demonstrative of the Wild West that Kubernetes still is a bit. You can get to 5,000 nodes, but you're going to have to solve some major problems along the way. Now, the OpenAI folks, they've been running with their current configuration for about 30 days. No, 90 days, I think they said. 90 days now without issue. So they seem like they're on the right track. I think it's important to remember really a couple of things. One, like you might not need something like Kubernetes. If you don't need to dynamically scale, if you don't have these kinds of, um, you know, orchestration limits that you're running up against, there's a lot of complexity involved. And if it isn't essential to what you're trying to do, if you can simplify things, do that first before you go bother setting up Kubernetes. Now, it is really fun and interesting and exciting, but yeah, it's still being worked out. And it's it's taking on a big task. It's trying to manage distributed applications running across all kinds of different servers, that is not easy. And I think it's easy to think that it will all be, you know, super simple. You just have this YAML file that you throw at it and it works. And it does do that a lot of the time. But you should still expect that you're running complicated distributed systems and you're going to have to get in there, find some details and do some tuning. DigitalOcean.com. Go over there, create an account, and then use our promo code SNAPOcean. That'll give you a $10 credit. DigitalOcean is a dedicated cloud hosting platform. It's simplicity at scale. They're dedicated to making every step as easy as possible, but not take away the power. They really walk that sweet spot between their super nice dashboard that makes it possible to create systems in seconds, configure them just as you would like, attach SSH keys to them, manage and configure your DNS. There's an HTML5 console that you can manage right there at the console of the machine. And then they have an API that you can build on or take advantage of lots of great open source applications. The documentation is bar none. That's another area they've focused on really well. So once you have a system deployed, they have the best documentation. And I would just recommend you go check it out because some of it is just great for industry reading. They have different types of optimized compute types that you can deploy. So if you want something that's an entire stack, it's a one-click deployment. And of course, they have global availability. You can deploy to eight data centers all over the world, scale as you need with block and object storage, floating IPs or redirect network traffic between your droplets, load balancers built in at the system level, and monitoring and alerting with dashboard metrics for days. Check it out at DigitalOcean.com. Create your account and then apply our promo code SNAPOcean and get a $10 credit. DigitalOcean.com, promo code SNAPOcean. Thanks for visiting techsnap.systems slash contact and sending us in your questions and your feedback. Bill wrote in saying, guys, I'd like you to talk more about Windows. I've listened to your recent introduction to change management, and it still seemed very Linux-centric. Um, he says that he hopes in the future we could try to include Windows, desktop, and server OS more as well. That is actually something we've been attempting to work back into the show a bit. Uh, we recently did the SMB fundamentals coverage and uh, the RDP uh, uh, coverage. So there's been, I, I'd say, uh, more Windows coverage. But yeah, we're, we're still trying to find the balance there between BSD, Linux, and Windows, and all the OSs. And a lot of times, it's driven by the audience feedback and questions. Yep. So thanks for letting us know how you feel, Bill. Yeah, thank you, Bill. TechSnap.System slash contact if you want to send your feedback or your question in. Uh, Will writes in with his. He says, great show on configuration management. 
Uh, he says, I was surprised for a fairly short runtime. It felt like I got a full show. That, thank, Excellent. That's what we're going Great. for is we're trying to make it worth your time, but get as much in there as we can. He says, I just got a new laptop and was trying to use the migration as an opportunity to organize my configuration. I'd been looking at Yadam. Am I saying that right? Yadam? 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 Yeah. <laughs> oh, for my dot files. Uh, but I might try Ansible in addition. Are there any ways to get started other than writing a whole playbook and trying it out with a trial and error type approach? I'm thinking maybe something that could record the steps I take and then turn them into a playbook. Or maybe look at a final product that I want and extract the steps from that. I should be able to do some of this from just looking at my bash history after I set things up. Will wraps with a tip about deconf dump and says that might be a way to capture settings configured through GUIs, deconf dump. What do you think, Wes? Is there a is there an easier, quicker way for him to get started with Ansible? Uh, there's to, for, to some extent, there's no escaping. Like you need to be able, you know, there's a certain amount of work you have to do to just get it to work. Um, I do think he's onto something. Like there, you know, you can hit it from two ends. One, I would say, is starting small on the Ansible side, trying to come up with a simple playbook to just twiddle one setting as a you know understand how to get it working. Sure. Then go do all your configuration, however you need to, and then you can merge those two and use Ansible to recreate that settings file. There's also two things you can do to maybe get more familiar with Ansible. Um, one is Ansible has ad hoc commands. So you can just run a one-off command from Ansible without having to write a playbook. So that might be helpful. And there used to be a side project called Ansible Shell as of Ansible 2.0. That's now integrated in Ansible and it's a little Ansible console. So I find that pretty useful too. I always find a REPL good for, for learning exactly. Yeah. Um, so that might be something too where you can sort of play before you're ready to build your final playbook. And then along those same lines, Gary wrote into the show to point us and everyone over towards an Ansible best practices post up on GitHub. It is an extensible post about getting started, things you should consider, how to organize everything, how to manage external roles, your naming, your staging, all of the things that you really should consider that you wouldn't know to consider until you've built one of these a few times is captured here. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes, techsnap.systems slash, what is this, Wes? 353. 353. And thanks, Gary. Yeah, and please send your questions into the show, techsnap.systems slash contact. We need to get more of those in here. And I want to just wrap with a little follow-up. When we were doing our Meltdown and Spectre coverage, I moaned a little bit that Apple seems to be neglecting the older versions of macOS. Yes, you did. And was only patching High Sierra. They seem to have rectified that. It took them a little while, but yeah, they have now released security updates for Sierra and El Capitan. So they have patched the current version and the previous two versions of macOS. Not too bad. More in line with their traditional practices. I don't know what the delay was here. I think it just made everybody sort of uneasy, but they have delivered on that. So if you have an older OS on your Mac, you can now update that as well and be protected or at least mitigated from Meltdown Inspector. Well, with that little bit of good news, that does it for us this week. Yeah, thank you, everybody, for listening. I want to plug the RSS feed really quick before we run, because next week's schedule is a bit wonky. There's a there's a big canonical event coming into town that we will be at covering, which is going to mess with all of our show's oh, recording yeah. schedules. So just go over to techsnap.systems slash subscribe for all the ways to get the latest episode of TechSnap. When we publish it, you'll get it. And if you want, it's techsnap.systems slash RSS. Just plug that into anything that pulls down uh, podcasts and you'll get it directly. Techsnap.systems slash RSS. All of our links and past episodes are over on that same page. You can follow the network at Jupiter Signal. He's at West Payne. I'm at Chris LAS. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Bye.